I'm Seema Amble, Assassin Fintech Investor at Andreessen Horowitz. The number one question I get asked by early B2B Fintech founders is, how do I acquire my first set of customers? As well as, how do I get my customers to trust me with their money? In my first 16, I chat with the founders of several prominent fintech companies and ask them about how they targeted their initial customers, what they did to win their business, and their hardest learned lessons. Today, my guest is Jason Gardner, the founder and current executive chairman of Marketa, which offers card issuing and payment processing services. Gardner is a multi-time founder with a wealth of experience building companies and acquiring customers in new markets. We'll hear from him on how he navigated the shifts in business model over the years, what it means to be welded to your customer, how to manage and prioritize feedback you're getting from initial customers, and how to land and expand in a vertical. Let's dive in. As a reminder, the content here is for informational purposes only. It should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any ACCZ fund. For more details, please see acccom slash disclosures. All right. Uh, thanks right. so much for joining me, Jason, today. Um, excited to have you. Thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. We'd love to kick off um, with you sharing a little bit about the Marquetta founding story. It's super interesting given you've been in payments for a long time and uh, the businesses, uh, you know, had a really interesting path to where it is today. So we'd love for you to sort of recap how um, the Marquetta founding story looked. Yeah, an interesting path over 13 years. Uh, so I, I co-founded another payments company called Property Bridge, which allowed you to pay rent electronically. Um, we sold that at the end of 2007, and I stayed on with MoneyGram International, who acquired the company till the end of 2009. And I wanted to do another payments company, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, had you know got together with a bunch of different friends who were all through entrepreneurs and had talked to them about hey you know where are the areas that are that are interesting to you, and uh, I had gone out to dinner with my friend Suki Singh in San Francisco or in a sushi restaurant, and he literally pulled out a bunch of Groupon coupons out of his pocket and he says it's so silly that I got to carry around these pieces of paper. You're a payment nerd. Why don't you put them on a card? And it was like. I froze and I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do was go solve that problem. And I think when you're as an entrepreneur, like you want to go solve a problem and it's a lot of fun using technology to go and do that. So I knew nothing about building a card product and went out and spoke to a lot of folks. And they said, well, you have to build what's called an issuing processing system. Uh, and what you're trying to accomplish, put a bunch of cards on a single card, sort of like one card to rule tomorrow. Uh, has been done and it's always failed. So there's no way that you're going to be able to do it because there's a bunch of other people that have done it before. And that really drove me to go solve that problem, something that had never been done before. So uh, we started the company, uh, it was about January 15th of 2010. That's when I got the Marketa.com uh, URL and uh, kind of the rest is history from there. But there's a lot of different steps and pivots along the way to get to where we are today. You've got about three phases almost in the business or the business model, and and curious how you thought about MVP and what um, what to to start off offering customers. Yeah, in the very early days, so the the original idea was let's go solve you know the ability for you to put a bunch of Groupon coupons on a card. So what we found through lots of discussions was that. Every terminal, whether online or offline, whether you swipe a card, insert a card, tap a phone, actually, you know, the Apple Pay wasn't even out by then. There was Samsung Pay or Android Pay. 
or GPay, what they call it now. And um, in an online, you're entering your, you know, 16-digit card number. could be more if you're using uh, American Express. And we found that every transaction was globally unique amongst the millions and millions of transactions that happen every day. So what we started to go build as an MVP is how do we figure out like where you are based on a card swipe and then have a sort of a purse among many purses on a card, millions of them. And then we can authorize and and move the funds out of that specific purse, purse based on a card swipe, which happens within milliseconds. So that was the original MVP that we had to go and build was really solve that problem. Got it. And that's quite a lot to build. Uh, and in, in fintech, often you can't start with just, you know, a few lines of code and yeah. and then launch it into the ether. How long did that take for you to get the MVP? And when did you sort of think, okay, this is good enough to actually put into to customers' hands? It took us about, uh, about 15 months because I remember when we signed the program manager agreement with Discover. This was early 2011. And then we closed our Series A on June 2nd of 2011, which was co-led by Greylock Israel and Grant Adventures. Uh, we had raised, I believe, $5.2 million was our Series A on a $10.5 million pre. And at the time, we thought we were absolute rock stars. And then we started sort of testing uh, late 2011. So we, we started our own product called the Marquetta card. And, and that was basically to prove that we could put a bunch of Groupons on a card and then authorize and then move money based on those, those transactions. So that was really the first step was we were kind of the first customer before we started going out to uh, really what you see today. Yeah, we'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, just finding those initial customers and, you know, who you tested with. And and again, I know it's different for as each of each of the, you know, twist or iteration of the business, but uh, how you thought about the first few customers. Yeah, so so to your point, there are kind of three, I would say, well, two real pivots, but three iterations of Marketa. First was the Marketa card. And so our customers were were people, you know, people that wanted to pay in advance for their groceries or pay in advance for their lunches or dinners. And that was moderately successful. I'm more of an infrastructure person. I, I, don't, I don't know really how to build pretty things. I know how to edit them, but I don't know how to build something specifically for a consumer. So we didn't have product market fit for that. I wasn't necessarily enjoying myself. I didn't see the company as this consumer brand long-term. So. The first move was we got a call from Facebook and Facebook wanted to build what was called the Facebook card. Uh, hundred friends uh, want to send a hundred different gift cards to you on your birthday and it needs to live on one card. And I remember getting the call from uh, Ted Zagat, uh, was introduced from a friend and I was like, wow, you know, this is this is actually what we built, the ability to have many different gift cards or purses living on a single card. And uh, they said, hey, you know, we, we are talking to all of these companies uh, in the payment space and they're all mentioning you. And we were tiny. We were like 18 people at the time. And he said, you know, got together with the, with his team and said, we're going to run a test to see if this is going to work. So. They loaded money into specific merchants. We didn't know which merchants they were. We had like maybe 10 on our platform and they put two or three, but they didn't tell us which ones they were loading money on. We could, we could see it happening, but they weren't telling us in advance. 
and they went and tested it and it, and it worked. So uh, we ended up working with their engineers and product people. And I just, I fell in love with that whole process of providing infrastructure to Facebook and then through that process. So that, um, the, it, it worked successfully, but it didn't get to where they wanted to be, is, which was at the time, I think, 1% to 2% of the gift card market in, in a year, which is in a payments world to get people to adopt something that fast is very difficult. Right. So that, that was the first step. And I'll, I'll take a break, uh, take a, uh, just a break there before I go on to what happened next. Uh, but that was the sort of the second phase of what we were doing. And that's where we ultimately decided that we shut down the, the kind of direct-to-consumer business and just focused on infrastructure. And that's when things got really, really interesting for the company. Yeah. And, and we'd love to focus on, on really that third phase uh, and what Marketa has really built on today um, and is known for. Um, so, you know, you've got this debit card issuing API that you've got in the, the third phase. Um, I'm curious, you know, now you've got these learnings, you, you've obviously been in the payment space for a long time. How did you think about, okay, who do I want to target for that product, um, you know, given where we are now? Yeah, and that, that third phase was a bit like magic. So that's where we found product market fit. And product market fit is, it's not binary. It's more of like the stars align and you're just like, oh my God, like, now I know what I want to do for the next 20 years is build this product because I can see how people light up when I'm talking about the value that I'm providing as a product and solving like real problems for them. And that's how we knew what we wanted to go and do. We were deep payment nerds. So we were selling a payments technology to companies that didn't necessarily know payments. What they knew was they had a problem to go and solve. So we really had to figure out how to operationalize the business, help them become compliant, help them have what's called an AML BSA policy to make sure they're not you know, doing anything in regards to that could potentially be fraudulent or bringing bad actors onto our platform. And when we started talking to the food delivery companies like DoorDash and Postmates and then became Uber Eats and eBay had our product. That's when we started to really see the value that we were providing. And specifically, I knew that we had something here was uh, we were in the Postmates office in San Francisco. We were talking to Sean Place, who was the co-founder and CTO. And it turned out that you know they were just giving gift cards to these drivers, but they had no way to authorize the right transaction at the right time for the right amount. And they were seeing lots of fraud. So we created a technology called JIT or Just-in-Time, which allows them to essentially authorize their own transactions. So we send the transaction to them. You know, They check is the driver on shift or in the right location using uh, Google's map API, using LatLong. And then they can authorize a transaction and the fraud went from a lot down to virtually zero. And that's when the business took off. So we decided that that's what we're going to focus on. And so were all the, the first customers in food delivery at that time? Yes. Got it. And, you know, it's a great use case, your point, right? The just-in-time uh, value prop resonates very you know, strongly, obviously, um, for that customer. Did you know that or did you sort of stumble upon it saying, okay, I, you know, 
and 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 or did you end up co-building saying okay i know these guys need a card we'll figure out that the the just in time product actually really sticks and you to your point earlier has product market fit with this customer so we co-built in the sense of as we began working with them in the early days they needed more they needed you know more data mm -hmm. they needed uh, it to happen faster. They needed to have better control over the card products themselves. So how do they do an API call to turn off a card if a driver was doing something that they shouldn't be doing? So the co-building was more of feature and function in regards yep. to the things that they needed. And of course, like we wanted to listen to what they had to say because we obviously saw these businesses growing. I mean, a lot of times, you know, for the companies are single threaded to us. So we can see their business growing. We can see more and more volume coming through the system. And it's a unique position to be in because we're helping them build their business. And what a great position to be in where you're working with your customer in seeing their business grow. And you're either supporting their card business or you are their card business. So that symbiotic relationship is just really, really tight. Yeah. No, and I think a lot of times what we see in fintech is the businesses that help uh, the core business grow end up having, you know, to your point, really strong product market fit because the customer is like, great, I want more and and I can really see the value prop versus it, um, it being a little harder to, to identify. Um, and just really tactically, I think a lot of times we get these questions around how how do you even get in front of these first few customers? So, you know, whether it was Tony at DoorDash or someone else there or at Uber Eats, like how did you how did you get in front of these folks? So we had a pretty small, a very small BD team in, in the beginning. Uh, it was me, uh, Amri Dahan, who was our chief revenue officer for about 10 years uh, Tony Ford, who was our CTO for seven years, and Dave Matter, who was our chief product officer for about seven years. So, so it was basically the four of us. Like we would get together and go visit, and we each had our roles to play. And then we ended up hiring. Um, this is I'm talking about the third iteration here. Uh, hiring basically three salespeople who were really good at getting us meetings, and and it wasn't like we were selling. Hey, you know, imagine this. It was saying. Hey, we know there's fraud in your system because fraud is wrought within the, the technology itself. We can actually help you scale. And here's where we've done it before. And this is the outcome of these companies using Marketa versus anything else out in the industry. Curious if you, did you say no to certain customers and say, yeah. hey, wait, or did you kind of keep them warm in some way um, and say it's coming, you know, wait six to 12 months? How did you, how did all, you all three. We said, no, we said, wait, uh, and we kept them warm. Um, some went to other technology providers. Um, they eventually came back to us uh, because we simply just couldn't, we, we couldn't keep up with the demand. We just found, and, and the team was like getting crushed. Like we were working seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. Um, you know, we became just really stressed around the business and we just couldn't, you know, keep the high quality that we wanted to keep and then be able to build the business at the same time. And we were doing great in revenue. Like, you know, we, we doubled revenue every year since 2015. Uh, up until I think it was like four, five, six years in a row. 
And we thought we were doing really well. So we, we decided that, you know, some customers we're just going to say no to because we don't want to fail them. And more importantly, we don't want to fail our existing customers. Instacart and DoorDash are still our customers today. Uber Eats and Uber still our customers today. That, that proves not only our customer service and our technology, but the strength of those relationships that we've maintained over time. And we felt that we, could, we, couldn't, we couldn't fail them and fail these new customers coming in at the same time. Yeah, no, it makes sense. You, you know, if you don't want to have churn, you want to have a, you know, build up a really good reputation in the market. And because I'd imagine a lot of this, you know, if you want to get the number one, two, and three in a category, you want to keep them. And then that's a obviously really important beacon to pull in more customers in the category and, and use this case studies even in other categories, I can imagine as well. Yeah. And, and I always felt like, if we're going to be a really good technology provider, we need to become virtually welded to our customers. We're so tightly intertwined with them. Like we become like an appendage or an organ. Like we need to be supporting their business in a way where they can't go to somebody else because we're so good at what we do. They wouldn't think about leaving us and going with another technology provider. And, and that I believe is still in the culture today. Like, when someone calls, pick up the phone. When someone texts, return the text. When someone emails, email them and do it as soon as you possibly can. But if they text you, like five minutes to an hour respond. And I've always found when you're, when you're working in a business like this where you're either supporting the core business or you are the core business, those response times are really, really important to building a trusting relationship. Yeah. And so, you know, when you say welded to the customer, is it mostly around just being super responsive or, you know, you have also talked about like responding to their, you know, their product and either the, you know, responding to the pull you're getting anything else that you did to really feel like you were quote unquote welded to the customer. User products. Like that was really important to us. Like I have my, my wallet and phone are full of our customers cards and I use them and I give them feedback on their products. Um, understand like who is your counterpart over there and that's your business partner your job is to make them successful and how you make them successful is responding and listening and you know if they need something give them you know or, or potentially we're going to deliver it in this quarter or we're not going to deliver that or we're going to deliver that maybe sometime next year but things are going to change like don't stress them out make sure that they have everything they need to be successful and that's the sign of a good business partner. Don't, don't make it just a transaction. If you want to make it just a transaction, then this is probably not the company you should be working for. It's interesting that you also said that you use all the cards, because I think a lot of times with infrastructure, people are like, well, how do I use the product that my customer has? But it's, it's using the end product, right? Which is to make sure that and, that, and seeing that the infrastructure actually just works you know, efficiently and smoothly. Um, and and that's, that's, that's part of doing it. I'd love to transition a little bit into pricing and um, and how you thought about that in the early days, because that's a question that comes up a ton. Um, you know, how did you just philosophically think about, you know, do you charge your first set of customers? Um, how do you position the pricing? And then um, and then we'd love to ask a few follow-up questions from there. So the, the payment card industry has been around for a long time, and there's already methods in regards to how and which is interesting is companies come to us to make money like we we pay them in the very early days 
we didn't do that because we, we were a new product. Like we didn't know exactly how to go sell it. It wasn't like, you know, uh, a DoorDash or someone else was going to a bank and said, you know, I'm Instacart. I do grocery delivery. I mean, typically I, re I remember the first time we, when we got Instacart up and running, we talked to our bank and their response was literally, why would somebody want their groceries delivered? Like it wasn't, it wasn't anything about like the card or what they're trying to accomplish. It was like, what a crazy business model. You, you California people are out of your minds. So in the early days, like they were, we weren't sharing the revenue because we didn't know what the business model would look like. And then eventually when we were really understanding of, you know, how do we create this symbiotic relationship based on how the current card market worked? We decided, like, let's start paying our customer based on volume. They deliver more volume to us. They make more money. And obviously, that is a, at a very high gross margin for them because, you know, there's basically no infrastructure that they need to pay for. It's us. We get a portion of that. We split it. But this became, you know, a pretty great revenue stream for them. And in the early days, we, we didn't know that sort of ignorance was bliss in regards to our revenue goals. But we found that within the card market that we needed to begin sharing back. And then that happened actually pretty fast. And then obviously today, you know, our customers, we pay them based on the volume of their, their the, based on the volume, you know, how many transactions are flowing through our system. And then we pay them uh, based on that, uh, that volume. And did you think uh, at the early, early days mm -hmm. um, or the early days of, let's say, the third iteration, were you thinking about, the unit economics and what this might look like in the future, or where you're just saying, let's get this product in folks' hands. We know this works and let's go from there. I'm a product person at heart and I care more about the product and the product market fit. I didn't focus on the revenue in the beginning at all. Like it was important and we kind of knew what the money-making machine would look like, but I always felt that like we need to build a great product and we need to have users that adopt that product. We need to respond to them. And once we have that strong product market fit and we understand what the story is going to look like and the value we're providing, let's figure out how to monetize that value. And, and, and that's what we did. So we didn't we didn't know what the unit economics would look like. Obviously, we had forecasts and the things that we were looking to get done, but the product became paramount to everything that we're doing. I, I feel like if we decided in the very early days, like, let's just build a product to go make money, we would have made terrible, terrible decisions. But if you're looking to build a great product and have product market fit and then have revenue follow that based on the value you're selling, um, that's where we got it. So we didn't, we began to sort of 2017 was really kind of understand what we wanted to do in regards to revenue. And mm -hmm. we still essentially have that same revenue model today. Uh, some things have changed, but but demonstrably, that's the revenue see the revenue model TC today was the same one as back then. Yeah, and it, it's it's not uncommon again when you're building a business uh, or you're you're partnering with someone and their business line is growing alongside you, right? To do the to to partner on the revenue and have a, a rev share. Uh, type agreement, right? Because you guys are both incentivized for that business line to grow and right. within the business. Um, awesome. Well, the other area I wanted to touch on next was around team. And you you touched on sort of this initial go-to-market team that you had. Um, be curious, you know, how you thought about sort of staffing up an initial go-to-market team, understanding that you already had a team from from 
um, from earlier. And whether you thought about sales or marketing, like what the right first few go-to-market hires, you know, how you decided on that sort of that core team that went out and, and sold the product. Well, the core team was the original executive team. Like we we had different roles and responsibilities in regards to talking with a customer and working with a customer. So in the early days, you really can't hand that off to an, an employee. Right. Um, they don't have the incentive like you have when you're building the business. I mean, it's really feast or famine. So you, you want to go out and you want a customer potential customers see like the fire coming out of your eyeballs. Like Marquette is a fait accompli, like the train has left the station and you can join us and help, we can help you scale your business or you can go with an inferior solution and that is gonna, you know, not be great for your business and eventually you will come, come back to us. We, we didn't like sell in an obnoxious way, but we sold as if this was the solution, the be all end all solution for their business. Well, the next thing I wanted to touch on was, you know, feedback you learned through these initial set of customers and let's say in food delivery, and then how you translated that into scaling up um, and acquiring your, you know, additional verticals um, of, of, and, and other sets of customers. So I don't know if you pulled up at some point after um, you know, after working with a number of these food delivery folks and said, okay, we're going to consciously go after X, Y, and Z vertical next. And here's what we've learned. Or, you know, how did you sort of think about transitioning from food delivery into the, the, the subsequent verticals? We were, I think it was the first money 2020. We're in Europe. We're sitting down with Klarna and they're talking about onboarding merchants. So a lot of times in the early days of one-demand delivery, it took a lot of work for the merchant to go integrate together. So we need to figure out a way to sort of help the on-demand delivery companies onboard merchants much, much faster. And how we did that was, you know, it's a card that's already linking to the point of sale device. This goes back to sort of the original plan with, you know, Groupons on a card. So we knew the merchant, we could send them the data and then they can authorize or decline those transactions based on, you know, a, uh, have the uh, consumer has the app on the phone, you know, they sign up for some, you know, it could be Sainsbury's grocery and, you know, they want to uh, buy now, pay later for their groceries. So that's where we were like, oh, this is actually another great use case. And let's just go focus on on-demand delivery companies. And, and we are now the, you know, the probably the, the largest provider of card technology solutions to buy now, pay later companies around the world. So that was really the second one. The problem we ran into was just capacity. Like we saw, you know, Instacart and Uber Eats and Postmates and uh, DoorDash, you know, just their businesses were scaling so fast. And we were constantly trying to keep up to capacity. And then we're like, oh, wow, we're going to add a, another vertical one. We did that. And then we began to land a bunch of other customers like Affirm. So how did you pick BNPL as the as, as vertical number two? So I think that it was the magic. It was just being in, in um, I think it was in Copenhagen at the time is where the Money 20 tier first started. It was talking to their CTO and team at the time and understanding, you know, what were the problems that they were facing and then like just having sort of that vision match at a table and saying, I know how to do this for you. And let me, let me sort of lay this out of what 
I'm thinking in regards to how we go and accomplish this and just to watch them light up. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't know if this was intentional, but the food delivery was taking off as you were working with them. And then BNPL, I'd imagine you right around the, that time was starting to take off as well. So you kind of caught that that tailwind uh, for both of you to grow together. And I don't know if that was premeditated, but uh, it, it certainly, uh, you know, worked out well. I mean, I think we would all like to think it was premeditated. We were just really lucky at picking, you know, the right verticals at the right time. Um, and then even, you know, Square at the time, now Block and their cash app, you know, they, they wanted to go build a car to help individuals who they were, were sent money to move that money off. Like, you know, our opportunity to work with Square was amazing. And we thought like, ah, you know, I don't know if this is going to be a big product or not. And they didn't even think at the time it was going to be a big product. And then obviously that completely blew away all of our predictions in regards to how Cash App would go and build. And now it's one of the largest debit programs in the world. So we're both lucky in regards to finding the right partners and the right verticals. But I also think we're very skilled at building the right technology and products and harnessing the power of what these businesses want to go build and fulfilling their vision around delivering this technology sort of just in time in regards to the things that they want to go and build. Just to wrap up, we'd love to hear any advice that you have for early stage founders, you know, either things you've learned or something you would guide your earlier self around. I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a several things. I think number one is you're not special. Like whatever you're dealing with is not unique there has been thousands of other entrepreneurs of both technology companies and small businesses that have run into exactly what you've run into. So, you know, dial a friend, uh, you can reach out to me, you can reach out to others who have been through this at like different types of scale and different types of problems. Everybody has dealt with it. You're going to get lots of different advice. Um, you got to choose what's, what's the best path for you. Um, number two is, Focus on your product, like product market fit is primary. Without product market fit, you have nothing. So in the early days is like really focus on your customers. And if you can find one customer that really wants to work with you and really wants to buy you, treat them like gold, like make them family and deliver and respond to make sure that they become a referenceable customer as you go build your business. And number three is, is just like really hire the right people at the right time. Like there were times that we like scaled up in areas that we didn't really need at the time. We, we were, you know, it was, a, it was a strategy of hope. We hope that this becomes something that we really need because you can kind of see it. And we missed made poor investment decisions in, in those areas. You know, number, number four is, you know, when you're raising money and never run out of money, like find people who understand your business and even if they say no to you now, still like accept the no and it's great. Like I love the no. Okay, no, but why? And they, and they would share why and you just stay in touch with them. Send them an email once a month. Say like, this is the success that we're finding because eventually they're going to invest in your business. And, and we have several instances of that happening. So that's four. And I, I can go on more and more, but I think those are kind of the four primary of going in, in, uh, in building a business successfully. Yeah, this has been great. Uh, Jason, thanks so much for sharing so much of the story. There's so much that people can learn from this and, uh, you know, really appreciate you spending the time. Thanks, Seema. Thank you for having me. It was, these are fun. I really, really enjoy this. I'd like to close by thanking my guests for sharing their insights on finding early customers and building strong businesses. 
You can hear the rest of My First 16 by going to a16z.com backslash podcasts. And be sure to go to a16z.com backslash fintech for the latest industry-related content. There, you can also subscribe to our monthly fintech newsletter. Thanks for tuning in.